is the tipping point between democracy and dictatorship? Why do some nations fall under one supreme leader's sway? What actually is the perfect storm that can turn a thriving democratic nation into a totalitarian nightmare? Economic ruin, war, massive immigration, no money, no water, no nothing. You would think this is a recipe for a strong leader takeover and everything in the army for having a coup d'etat and everything else. That's Dr. Jonathan Freeman, an international relations and media expert who lectures at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem on national security, government and politics, Israel's relations with the world, and civil-military relations. This week, the Brothers in Arms protest group is signing on thousands of IDF reservists to a document objecting to the Israeli government's judicial overhaul. They're stating, we will not serve in a dictatorship. At the same time, hundreds are marching from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem to build a tent city near the Knesset ahead of next week's fateful vote on the reasonableness bill. All this to prevent what they see as steps leading to a dictatorship. But unlike most Israelis you meet today, Dr. Jonathan Freeman is passionately optimistic about the strong state of Israel's democracy. So this week, I, Amanda Borshaldan, asked Dr. Jonathan Freeman what matters now. Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Yonatan, thank you so much for joining me today at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Glad to be here. Such a pleasure to see you. I just got back myself from Africa, where I overheard so many conversations about dictatorships. And obviously this week we're seeing people hitting the streets again, trying to prevent a dictatorship here in Israel. And so I ask you this week, Yonatan, what matters now? I think what matters now is that we have various parts of society uh, who are voicing their opinions on various uh, reforms that might uh, come through. We're seeing people in uniforms, we're pe- seeing people without uniforms. And above all, we're seeing that the future uh, of this country is is really important to, uh, to many activists, ordinary individuals. And uh, I think that really shows how uh, democratic values are something that are in the minds of many who uh, live here. 
I have to admit that I've always respected the idea of protests against the judicial overhaul and those who are pushing it as well, but I never internalized the existential fear that people have until they actually witness what life was like under dictatorships there in Africa. And people are jolly and people are living their lives, but there are certain topics they won't talk about. There are certain things that they know are taboo. There's, of course, bribery that's rife throughout the countries. And so let's first of all define what is a dictatorship? Well, I think in the end, the main thing about dictatorship is that the one who dictates uh, the way the regime works is not the people, uh, it's those who are in power who most likely didn't get there through the ballot box. They maybe got there through bullets. And uh, above all, it's a nation of rulers and not of uh, laws. Uh, second thing is really also about uh, the freedoms that individuals have uh, to express themselves in, in different things, whether it be the media, uh, whether it be uh, verbally in other places, in schools and academia. And I think the third main attribute of a dictatorship is that the power in terms of the military, uh, a lot of times, is something uh, which gives the orders, not the other way around. And I think that one major attribute of a dictatorship is that uh, it's not the people who tell those who have the power what to do, uh, it's the other way around. So here in Israel, it's a little confusing to me uh, because our army is, of course, an army of citizens. And parts of the army are now protesting against the government and refusing to serve, not yet refusing direct orders to serve, but re refusing to volunteer to serve. So could this be considered some kind of semi-military coup? Well, I don't think so. I think that uh, we have to be very uh, careful about characterizing what's going on uh, today. Uh, in one of my lectures, I was just talking about it today, actually, uh, many of the tools that protesters have today, even those uh, from within the military, uh, were unavailable during previous times of our history. Think about all the new media, social media, all these different things. So when one makes the conclusion like this is the most protest we've ever seen and look what's going on, uh, we have to understand that the megaphone that they have today is much larger uh, than what was available in the past. So I'm very careful to subscribe to the opinion this is the most we've ever seen and we've never seen it before. I'm not so certain about that. Uh, I'm also not certain that uh, the types of things we're hearing from the military are in large scale like many people feel. Uh, from what I've been seeing in the media and different reports, most of what has been announced in, in terms of actions are those who haven't been called up. In other words, they're saying, if they call me up, I won't be getting up rather than someone being called up and not coming, which is very uh, minimal from what I've been hearing. And I think that uh, Israelis have proven uh, that in times of trouble, uh, we, leave, we leave our politics at home and, and we come to defend uh, the country. And we know what's going on right now in the North. We know those Hezbollah tents, there's Iran, all these different things. Uh, within seconds, and we all know seconds in the Middle East, especially in Israel, that can be a major change. Within seconds, we can have a, a major operation which causes everyone to suit up and uh, and go to battle. And I think that even though it might seem that that has been broken, that system of uh, being called up and defending the country is broken, I think that when push comes to shove, we will still see uh, those individuals come in. And there's always the joke, and not a joke, it's really a funny story that when we have an emergency, all the people that we haven't seen in a while. Oh, I was in a trip. I didn't want to come today. 
we, everyone shows up. We've never seen them before, and they, they show up exactly when they are needed. Okay, that's really fascinating and a great insight into the Israeli psyche and, and personality, shall we say, of the country. But at the same time, it's so divided right now, and the rhetoric is at such a hateful point that this idea of uh, our Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu being a dictator is basically a slogan that's been going on, of course, before the judicial overhaul protests. Of course, there were the Balfour protests too. But this idea of a dictatorship is just not, it's not going away at any in any way. Yeah, I, I agree that this is something that has stuck. Um, but I think, and we all know about this sentence, that the moment you say it's a dictatorship and nothing happens to you, uh, I think that really negates uh, this description I actually think on the opposite, not without looking at Netanyahu specifically, but over the years, uh, even since our founding, I think that Israel has become more democratic. I think if you look at some of the things we have on the books, like emergency laws, you know, within a second, I don't have to talk to a judge or anyone. I can take someone's property. I can put him in jail forever. Different things that we have, different tools, which are less and less used by the government, doesn't matter who it is, uh, even when it comes to uh, control uh, by the government of different uh, parts of the economy, privatization. Uh, used to, whenever you wanted to go abroad at Ben Gurion Airport, if you're in reserves, you would have to get an a, a approval from the military to go to Cyprus for a vacation. Today, you don't have to talk to anyone. So I think, and if you look at the media, look at all the media that's that's new that wasn't in the past, just one channel, now we have dozens. So I think... Um, it is true, and I kudos to their uh, advisors and everyone. I think it's working in terms of uh, the the political opposition, and and I have no uh, beef with them. That's what they're supposed to do. In the end, they're supposed to want and, and try to campaign to to replace him to to be elected themselves. That's what they're supposed to do, and it seems that in this battle, uh, they've really focused on an attribute uh, which is bringing more results. In other words. It's not that we have a better plan, it's that his plan is a dictatorial plan, and that's why you should oppose him. And I think if you look at the polls, recent polls, you see that uh, Benny Gantz, for example, he's rising in the polls in terms of his approval and also his uh, ability to be prime minister in, in the future. Uh, it's helping them. And I think that um, if you really ask them, without the media, without the audience looking at it, I think they would agree with what I'm saying. But on the other hand, they would agree that what they're saying publicly is something that's helping them uh, in their quest to, to be to be in the government. That's their purpose. That's what democracy is all about. You're talking about the political opposition, but what we're seeing more and what's capturing more of the headlines is, is of course, the grassroots opposition. They are not as yet a political party. Um, from what I understand, they don't truly have plans to become one, at least in the meantime. And elections aren't even on the horizon so far. But I would I would wonder what about this rhetoric? That is a different situation. Yeah, I think that um, many of those have many opinions in terms of what's going on in, in the judicial uh, reforms and judicial uh, laws that they want to be uh, they want to be passed. Uh, but if you look at the the messaging in terms of their explanations as to why they opposed it. If you look at it, a lot of it is is the explanation that the opposition is giving them in terms of their explaining. I mean, have they gone and read the actual uh, proposal? Have they seen it? I, who told them about it? Um, and again, they might be here and there, but I'm saying a lot of them uh, are really there because they're sticking to the issue of the dictatorship 
characterization. In other words, and actually I heard just a few days ago, I think one of them even said, some of the leaders, even if this, one of the reforms, the ones that's coming up is not uh, pushed forward, they're still going to be there. I mean, how, if it's all dictatorship and what they're saying is true, so what does it matter if this law is being passed or not? It's still Netanyahu. So uh, I'm not certain that it really has to do with these reforms. It has to do, again, with the kind of branding that uh, is now working for them. And actually, I would even say that those who, who support uh, these reforms, many of them also are doing it. And actually, I think I saw one of the uh, uh, parliament members on the interview today or yesterday uh, was saying that they were asking her, why do you want to continue with it? And now she's saying, because of these protests, that's why. It's not because of all the reforms where we really see something about it. It's because we want to put it in their face and we're going to do it because of that. So then the interview says, so that's so there is no real reason. It's just to show them what we can do. So I think both sides, um, there's a lot of rhetoric, as you state, and uh, we're moving away from an actual objective debate as to what what is being planned or what wants to be uh, pushed forward. And it's becoming more about uh, uh, who is more for democracy. And by the way, even those who are for it, this reforms are saying this will help democracy. In other words, they're saying we are against the dictatorship as well. Not Netanyahu as the other side's claim, but the dictatorship of the legal system. Both of these are very totalitarian views, it sounds like to me. I mean, from both sides, we're seeing totalitarianism. We must get rid of Prime Minister Netanyahu entirely, or we must negate the other side, the those who object to the judicial overhaul entirely. Right. I think there's a I think that if one one thing that we're seeing here is really the the information and where it's coming from. And I think that uh, especially when it comes to legal jargon and different things, uh, most people have a hard time understanding what it means. I mean, I'm seeing I'm seeing headlines, it will cancel this ability. Another headline, it will weaken the ability. No one even knows what it is exactly. And I think that everyone is really stuck up in the moment. Um, and again, they have the tools to do so. They have the megaphone, they have the Facebook, they have the TikTok, all these things. And uh, and I can even say that it will be harder for the leaders, even in opposition, that if they even strike a deal with Netanyahu about this to get those people to go home, it might be very difficult for them to do it. And I even think that some of them really maybe support some of the things and they want to get their compromise but they know that the people in the streets don't want them to do so. You're listening to this podcast. So I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning, without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So, educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History 
wherever you listen to your podcasts. I got married this Monday in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like my friend has a 4x4. Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag and a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their like blankie, their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel's story wherever you get your podcasts. So until now, we've talked about Israel as is. And so the question, of course, is Israel as it could be. Now, were these overhaul uh, legislation to pass, do you still see that Israel would be this, the thriving democracy as it is? Well, I think for one, even if it doesn't work out, the next government can cancel it. It's not as if we're doing a law and you can never cancel it. And we have many times in this this country uh, new governments who have come to power and changing laws uh, that have been passed by the previous government. And we have a lot of elections in this country, as you know. So uh, a new election is coming up probably very soon, unlike other countries, which might be even more difficult to do so. If you look at the United States, uh, different uh, opinions of the Supreme Court on abortions, different things. And Biden might not like it, but he can't do anything about it. Uh, and uh, even if he wanted to do something about it, in terms of the power of the Supreme Court, Think about changing the Constitution in the United States. That's going to take, I think the last time was like in the early 90s. It's going to take a lot. And that was something that took like years, decades. So uh, for one, they can change it. And it could also be that they change it because it's not working out as they expected. Just to give one example to your listeners, we had, and this is something that many political scientists have studied, in the 90s, the direct election of a prime minister, if you recall. And we never had this anywhere in the world where you vote for the parliament and the prime minister at the same time. And you know why they did it? They did it to improve democracy. That was the actual reasoning. But some people said, oh, this will cause a dictatorship. That's what they said back then. And then they did it. And they also stated this will increase stability and this will be good. And later, everyone agreed, even those who proposed it, it was a bad idea. Bad idea. And they canceled. We only had three elections when they did it. So... With all this um, criticism, uh, I argue that the criticism could even come from those who supported it and say, this was not what we expected. It was a bad idea and we got to change it. That's number one. Uh, Number two, again, even when it comes to uh, Israel and the future, I think if you look at the values that people have, uh, Israel's civil society has continued to increase its uh, democratic values. Uh, if you look at uh, all the different things that are happening with the rights of women that have increased over the years in Israel, uh, you look at uh, gay rights, which have increased. We just had uh, this week the IDF nominated uh, new generals and everything. We're going to have the first time ever in the IDF uh, a member of that community as the chief medical officer. 
And we also have Amir Ochana, who's the head of the Speaker of the Knesset, who's a member of the uh, gay community as well. And that's during a time where the government is seen as fighting uh, gay rights here in Israel. So I think that if you look at the actual values, you look at the culture, you look at the wishes of the Jewish and non-Jewish population of Israel, it's all pointing to more and more democracy. It doesn't matter who's there and what they think. That's where they're aiming. So even if they had these draconian tools, which again, I told you, we've had, we have it right now. It's less and less being used because no one wants to use it. Uh, and I argue that if we had that concern that maybe this will lead to something like that, I want to see proof. Show me when has it been done? When have we used those kind of things? And if you look at Netanyahu as a, as a leader as well, uh, and he's been, he's our longest serving prime minister ever, I always uh, ask, show me measures in terms of policies, not in terms of members of his cabinet who every day can say something. That's easy to say. We have, you know, I always talk about how uh, there's one prime minister in theory, but there's like 15. Every one of them wants to be prime minister. It's not like in, in the White House, Biden says it, and, and we don't even know what the name of the secretary is. He doesn't even talk. Here they all talk all day long. So when it comes to policy and substance, uh, Netanyahu has been here the longest ever. Uh, show me actual policies in the field uh, which have curtailed democratic rights for the country and, and even using the tools that are available in, in his hand. You know, he can fire the, the advisor, legal advisor to the government uh, in, in one hour. He hasn't done it. He could pass now, all. he has 64, right? He can pass all the laws for Arya Dairy to return, everything. He's not doing it. And uh, and that really shows that I. it's very important to focus on what the policies are in the end and the history of undemocratic behavior. Okay, so let's talk about the history of undemocratic behavior with one of the countries I visited last week, uh, Uganda. You mentioned gay rights. There aren't any. For example, you mentioned being voted in. He was voted in, the president Museveni, I believe is his name, but in 1986, I think, but there's no real way that he'll be voted out. I don't know if he's ever voted in again. I'm not sure if people are voting for him, but he's not going to be voted out. How did this come to pass there? Well, I think you have to look at the history. And if you look at um, Israel and Israelis, um, I think that if you look at around the world, all the history, everything, uh, the population here, in terms of our DNA, very much knows in its most drastic terms, uh, what the results of dictatorship can be. Not just talking about Nazi Germany, you can think about also uh, USSR. Uh, we know, we know, and everyone knows someone or is someone who came from those sort of societies. So I think we know who we want not to be. Uh, and if you look at other countries in Africa, uh, which throughout history were not uh, places of, of democracy, uh, places which uh, were exploited, uh, various empires. You just look at a map, see how straight the lines are, all the borders. And um, and all those those lines lead not to democracy, not to democracy. So they don't have that history. They don't have that DNA in terms of uh, uh, a history of democratic values. So there's a longer process that has to be made there uh, when it comes to their uh, uh, building of democracy, building of civil society. So when it comes to, to elections, sure, elections, but that's just one part of democracy. There's other other things that have to do with that. Uh, when it comes to freedoms of expression, religion, and uh, elections, just one thing. You know, North Korea, they have elections. 101%, even the dead, vote for Kim Jong-un. 
That's not democracy. They would have the word democracy in their in their official name. So I think uh, when you look at a continent like Africa, I think that they uh, most of those countries still have a lot of work to do in terms of building civil society, building the the mindset, not of I need a vote in the ballot, but the mindset uh, that democracy is something that that can help us in different parts of society, whether it be economically, culturally. And I think that if you look at over the years, the relationship that Israel has with Africa, and actually it was Netanyahu who started the African strategy a few years ago and visited many countries in Africa, including Uganda, uh, where his brother fell in, in Entebbe. Uh, recently, we had the, that uh, anniversary on July 4th. And uh, I think that part of the reasoning that Israel is doing it is not so much to improve business and, and sell things and, and everything else, but I think that um, we understand in Israel uh, is happy when democracy is on, on the rise in the world. I think that Israel understands that uh, the more tools we give to these countries to fight poverty, uh, to fight droughts, different things, that will also be able to strengthen uh, a civil society because, and if you look at research, the more people that are active uh, in that kind of uh, initiatives in the country are those who aren't hungry, are those who have an education. So the more you improve their livelihood, so you will improve the chances for democracy in those countries as well. Okay, fascinating. Now, just yesterday, this week, we heard that Israel is officially recognizing Western Sahara as being under Moroccan sovereignty. And this is a controversial move, one that we suspected would happen because of the Abraham Accords, etc. But how are we viewed on the international stage after doing something like that? Well, I think we have to first mention that the actual hinting or announcement that we're going to be doing it uh, was actually done by the previous government, uh, Bennett Lapid. We had the Minister of Interior, Ayala uh, Chaked, uh, travel to Morocco, and there she announced it. Part of the, as you mentioned, the Abraham Accords uh, was that the United States would recognize the Western Sahara, uh, the Trump administration. And by the way, the Biden administration has continued as we speak with that policy. It hasn't rescinded it or anything. Uh, but I think that and this actually uh, connects to what's going on right now in terms of the U.S.-Israeli relationship. Uh, right now, the United States and Israel, the only countries in the world, apart from Morocco, who recognize that territory. And I think that first off shows uh, the relationship that Israel has with the United States and that um, uh, it's very close and uh, we take into account the uh, desires and, and uh, orientation that we have as being in a pro-American uh, camp. And uh, on the other hand, we also seek to improve relations with Morocco. And I think that uh, part of what we're doing here is also trying to sow the seeds for additional um, agreements with other countries in the Arab and Muslim world, in the African uh, continent, because that's not, that's not the only country that has uh, territorial disputes uh, and uh, many countries expect that when we sign an agreement with them uh, we will also recognize uh, their borders as well I mean we're always telling them recognize the Golan Heights recognize Jerusalem so who are we to tell them that they're incorrect when it comes to Western Sahara that's what they say so who am I to say something else it, it will be uh, something uh, not 
uh, correct to do. Uh, if, if for years, and if you think about the country, which for decades has the, the biggest issue when it comes to borders and recognizing your capital for embassies, Israel, I don't know any other country that, that if you look at their maps, it says there's little asterisks, uh, we don't really agree or something. No other country. So I think it's it's really something that we're doing on, on three levels. One, relations with America. Two, uh, relations with Morocco. Number three, the future relations with other countries who also have uh, different measures and, and borders and, and other challenges that they want us to accept as well. Okay, so we've been talking about dictators and borders, so let's talk about Putin, Russia. It, we're in a very complicated situation right now. Putin is, I would say, a dictator, and we have traditionally had some pretty good relations with him, but right now we're in a bit of a muddle because we also want to have good relations with our fellow Jew, Zelensky. So how do you define this situation? I think that the first off, relations with America are the most important of all. If you if you go to the foreign ministry, maybe you've been there at, at their news uh, conferences there in the building, they have a placard on the, uh, on the wall in the back, the objectives of the foreign ministry of Israel and the first or second one is maintain good relations with America. It's the only one with a country on the list. And so that's number one. That's always been, always will be, no matter who's here and who's over there. But we also have good relations with Russia. I think that Israel is number one in the world in terms of percentage of population that have links to Russia or the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union. Uh, almost a ninth or a tenth of the population, a million almost, are, are related so, and we know there's big Jewish communities uh, still in Russia. Uh, and uh, so we have very important relations with them, also security relations when it comes to Syria and, and different things. And But on the other hand, as I said, we're part of the West. We support the West. We, we're observers in NATO. Um, and right now, they, there's a current war in a country which the West supports. And I think that Israel as we know, has been very careful to take sides. But I think there's two uh, other things that are going on as well. Number one, I think that uh, if you look at Israel as a Western country, I think that it's the number one Western country that has good relations both with America and Russia at the same time. I can think of any, no other country that can pick up a telephone to the Kremlin and they'll answer immediately just like we would call the White House. No one, even Biden can't do it. They won't answer, though. We'll take the call in Israel. So I think with all the criticism, and here and there, by the Europe maybe in America, what are you doing? I think behind the scenes, they like it. And the reason is, that way we can be a mediator. That way we can still have respect from Putin. That way we can pass messages over there and they can pass messages over here. And we don't even need an interpreter. We have enough Russian speakers in the government. We can do it. No problem. They need an interpreter. And so that's number one. And I think, and there were reports about that in terms of mediation. Some reports claim it's not working. I think otherwise. I think it continues. And the fact that Ukraine and their ambassador here in Israel, that every second is releasing a statement condemning Israel, I think that shows a lot in terms of how we may be a mediator because they're trying to sound off and influence the mediation. That's why that's why they're doing it. They're hearing something else. So I'm not so sure uh, it's not happening. Number two, uh, we also know that as the war is continuing, almost two years already, uh, Iran continues to increase its foothold uh, in the Ukraine. And I think that we can see a connection that the stronger Iran's presence is on the battlefield, 
that's stronger. We're supporting those who are opposing Iran because they're helping Russia. And there's different things going on here behind the scenes, which we are now assisting the Ukraine more and more. Uh, soon, your listeners will probably see a report. We're uh, going to be putting out a, uh, a code red system in the Ukraine to uh, warn them of incoming missiles. Uh, by the way, it's not the code red system we have in Israel because we don't want them to go there to Iran or someone. It's a different thing, but we're going to be doing that. We're treating their soldiers who are injured in hospitals in Israel. There's been reports just recently that we're going to be uh, allowing arms to go somewhere to a third country that maybe from there we'll be getting into the uh, Ukraine. So uh, we are doing it more and more. And I think I would also add this as well, just what we're talking about before in terms of our history. Uh, Israel, I'd say in terms of our people here, we are also aware of the uh, very bad results that could be when it comes to world war. We know it from all the peoples. And I think that part of our reasoning to be a mediator is that we don't want a World War III. World War III will be bad news for Israel, for the Jewish people, uh, based upon the past. We know what could happen. So I think part of that is not just what the West uh, desires, it's also what we desire. Uh, and we're very concerned. And by the way, Netanyahu, before he was elected, he was talking in interviews about that, how we're very concerned about a nuclear war, those sort of things. And unfortunately, it seems that the war is getting worse and worse uh, in terms of the ramifications. Um, so I think that uh, as that continues, Israel will seek to try to mediate more and more. And number two, as Iran continues its uh, fighting there, Israel will increase its support to those fighting uh, Tehran. You've mentioned Iran several times in the, in our conversation. And if America is our best friend, the one that we must have good relations with, would you say on that list in the foreign ministry, there could be space for Iran being the exact opposite? I think that Israel has no quarrel with the Iranian people. We know in the past we had very good relations with uh, Iranian uh, individuals, with Iran. Uh, we have no problem. And I think if you took a real poll in Iran, who's against Israel, I think uh, most would, would not be if it's a real free democratic poll, if we had it. But uh, we could say that Iran is the, the greatest threat right now. We know that the IDF even has a general now in charge of the Iranian threat. And uh, and Iran is also a actor which brings a lot of instability to the region in terms of it, the terrorist groups that it supports in Gaza, in, in uh, southern Lebanon, and other places, in Yemen, diff different places. And uh, I think that uh, it's also a, a threat which is bringing Israel closer to other countries in the Arab and Muslim world who also see Iran as a threat. If you think about Saudi Arabia, which we'll have to see what happens very soon, uh, they're, th they're threatened by Iran as well. And yeah, sure, we have now relations improving between the two, but doesn't say that, so they opened an embassy. It doesn't, show, it doesn't say anything about Iran not being an enemy at all. It's still an enemy. Maybe this is very smart too. We can even, we're using an embassy, you know, all those cultural attaches, they're not really cultural attaches. They're going to go do something else there. So I think it's very good. Um, and just recently, we had high-profile visits to Azerbaijan, which is on the border of Iran. We had the president. We had the minister of defense. There was even a, uh, an attack was going to be made about the Israeli embassy in Azerbaijan, which is the closest Israeli embassy to Iran, about, I think, 15 kilometers. So Iran is a major threat. And uh, that's more apparent to the Arab and Muslim world and also to Europe and in America. So I think that if you look at Israel, it's continuing to position itself as the leading 
coalition builder against Iran in the world. And I would even argue the country with the most experience, actual experience in the field of fighting Iran other than any other country in the world. That's really mind-blowing in a way. We've spent most of our conversation talking about dictators, dictatorship, and countries that have them. And I just want to ask you, what, in your opinion, is the most free, the least dictatorial country in the world? Well, I think it, it would be how you define it. I think if you look at different think tanks, uh, many of them would probably uh, classify those in Northern Europe, think places like Sweden, th those kind of places. Well, they have ABBA, so that, that makes sense. <laughs> but, uh, but I think it really depends on how you see it. I think that if you would ask the question, which democracy in the world has faced the most challenges and the, uh, the type, type of recipe for dictatorship and has not gone that way ever, I would say it's Israel. Because if you look at all the different events, economic ruin, war, massive immigration, no money, no water, no nothing, you would think this is a recipe for a strong leader takeover and everything in the army for having a coup d'etat and everything else and the opposite. So I think if you look at the democracy that has the most challenges in the world in its history, I, I can think of any other country with, with that kind of challenge. I can't think of another one and has still maintained democratic governance and even became even more freer. I would say number one in the world is Israel. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. When I was in Ethiopia last week on a reporting trip, I spoke with a former journalist who's now making a living in a different field. He told me he couldn't continue writing articles that had to follow the government's party line. The lack of free press, he said, stifled and silenced him. One of the ongoing trials against Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, the Case 4000, centers around the subversion of the free press for political favors. This week, Yunon Magala, Channel 14 journalist and former editor-in-chief of the Walla news website, testified and said that at his former news outlet, he was afflicted by constant meddling by several politicians, not only the prime minister. This meddling and external pressure on shaping the news there, he said, drove him, of all things, to enter politics. What Matters Now is produced and edited by The Podwaves. Have a comment about this or other episodes of What Matters Now? Email us at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Look for more What Matters Now episodes and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Until next week, shalom. Shalom.